Well, good morning again. It's good to see you guys. It's great to be with you. It's great to uh, hang out with you, or if you are in the room here or you're joining us online, it's great to see you as well. Or Pastor Andrew said, like, if you are listening later, people do that too. We have the podcast. Mark does an awesome job of getting everything up on the podcast. So if you're ever like, man, I miss Sunday and I don't want to watch YouTube while I drive, you can listen to us while you drive, right? That's always safer. Uh, just a quick announcement before I, I dive in today. Wanted to let you know there was a partner vote last week that we told you about, um, and I just wanted to let you know the results of that so you guys can know that we you can welcome Jesse and Ray, Jesse Rutledge Ray and Ray Meck as elders, so we're super excited about that. You can clap for them if you'd like. Uh, we are happy, happy to have them. Again, thanks to Chuck and Wally for all the years that you guys have put in as well. And then we did update some things to our constitution. That vote carried as well. Um, so just to let you know that. So if you have any questions, you can let me know. Um, but that was a successful vote last week. So we appreciate everyone that was here and was able to partake in that vote with us. Uh, my name's Corey, if we haven't met, and I have the honor and privilege of being the lead pastor here at GFC. And we've been walking through some very difficult questions this summer. By the way, I can't believe it's um, it's past the middle of July. So that's exciting, I guess. No, it's not exciting. So we're going to keep going, though. We have these difficult questions we've been diving into. That's what we've been talking about, this series called Confronting Christianity. Again, that's not a unique thing to us. We've gotten some of these questions from a book that was written a couple years ago. And so we've been really asking some of these questions because we want to wrestle with them. We want to know how to answer them, what to do with them. Maybe you've asked these questions yourself or you've had somebody interact with you on a level and, and kind of ask you these questions. Maybe you have family members that aren't Christians because of some of these questions. And so today we're actually going to tackle two of them. Okay, so we're going to really dive in and, and go into these two questions today. The first question is this, does the Bible condone slavery? Does the Bible condone slavery? Now, when we hear slavery as, as Americans, for me, there's like this sinking feeling, right? It's kind of the black mark on, on our history when we look back at the bad things that our country has done, the wrong things that we've engaged in, slavery is something that we don't like to think about. It's not a positive thing. We don't celebrate it. In fact, we've moved away from that, which is a positive thing. And so when we say slavery, it brings this deep response. And for people that are maybe not followers of Jesus or not part of church culture, when they see verses in Scripture that seem to at least not say that slavery is wrong, the reaction can be, well, if the Bible doesn't say it's wrong or the Bible doesn't tell us not to do it, if it even maybe encourages it, it seems, then why would we follow this book? Why would we look at it? Why would we say it's a good thing? And why would we listen to what it says if it doesn't actually come out and say that slavery itself is wrong? And so what I want to do today is actually go to a couple of verses that could be used or could be brought up as part of this discussion. Again, the easiest way for you to continue to follow along with me today is to go to the follow along page on the website. All the verses will be there. All the notes will be there as well. And we're going to be bouncing around a little bit today. So if you brought a physical Bible, I apologize ahead of time, okay, because you're going to be flipping a lot, all right? So we're going to start in Genesis 16, and we're only going to read verse 1. So Genesis 16, verse 1 says this, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Okay? That's verse 1. So when you read that, you just kind of go, okay, we're getting some history. But here's, here's what doesn't happen, and we're not going to go through the whole story today. 
but it acknowledges the fact that Abraham and his wife had an Egyptian slave. Nowhere in the story, by the way, there are some things if we go, if we were to dive into the story and see what went on and how things played out, that God says this is wrong, it shouldn't have been done this way. But if you get into the story, there's nowhere in the story where it simply says that having a slave was wrong. And so when you think about that, you look at Abraham, you look at Sarai, and you go, they had a slave, maybe multiple slaves, and Abraham was the father of Israel, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, those are the big fathers of Israel. Like they, if he had slaves, and then we carry that down into the New Testament, Jesus comes from that lineage, and then we never say that slavery is wrong. Well, why would we follow this? This is problematic. Why, why is slavery okay for Abraham and Sarai? Then we're going to bounce a little bit further in Genesis and go to verse, or sorry, chapter 37 in Genesis. We read verses 26 and 27. Verses 26 and 27 say this. Judah said to his brothers, what will we gain by killing our brother? This is the story of Joseph. We'd have to cover up the crime. Instead of hurting him, let's sell him to those Ishmaelite traders. After all, he is our brother and our own flesh and blood. And his brothers agreed. So they think, let's kill Joseph. And then they go, no, time out. Let's just sell him into slavery. And reading this verse, you kind of see his brothers go, that's a great idea. And we move on from it. Again, nowhere in this passage or nowhere in this story, right? Joseph is a long story. Nowhere in the story does it say simply that slavery is wrong. And so when it's just kind of accepted, especially as part of the Old Testament, we might look at that or people that are reading scripture might look at that and simply say, again, why would we follow this if it's not saying that slavery is wrong? And so here's the challenge for us today, especially as we think about this from our context, is we have to ask this question, what was slavery like in the Bible? You go back 2,000 years, what was slavery like, right? Because we have this as Americans, we have a very distinct idea of what slavery was. And we should, and we should understand that, and we should never go back to that. However, we have to ask the question, what was it like 2,000 years ago? Are we dealing with the same type of information? Are we dealing with the same kind of situation that we understand from a couple hundred years ago in our history. I would say, first of all, we want to understand this. The ancient slavery wasn't actually connected to racial hierarchy. So when we think about, again, our view of slavery, going to get people from another country, bringing them here as slaves, keeping them under our thumb, using them as property, right? That was a very distinct, and even into just a few hundred years, or a hundred years ago, there was this very distinct black and white issue in our country because there was racial hierarchy. But see, if you paid attention to the two verses I just shared with us, Abraham and his wife had an Egyptian slave. The Ishmaelites were coming to get Joseph, who was an Israelite. Well, they weren't coming to get him. They were, he was sold to them. But see, there was no, it wasn't this race versus this race. It was across all races. And so there wasn't this level of understanding where this race was going to control this one. Now we're going to get there because that does happen in Scripture. However, the general idea and one of the reasons why Scripture doesn't absolutely take away slavery or this idea of servanthood completely is because it wasn't racially charged. And we'll explain, I'll explain more about that in a minute. The second thing to understand is that it was common for people to sell themselves into slavery. 
You might go, why? Why would someone want that? Why would they sell themselves into that? We're gonna, I'm going to flesh that out again, but here's, here's the first thing that we just have to understand about it. If you came to a place where you had no job, you had no home, you had no way to support yourself, what you could do is you could then go to somebody who had a business, had a farm, had whatever, and say, I will give my services to you. In that situation, they would then house, clothe, and feed you, and you would work for that person. And so if you worked for that person, at least you knew that your basic needs were going to be cared for. You wouldn't be on the street, you would have a bed to sleep in, you would have a place to go, and you would have a job to do. And so it was actually common, again, we'll flesh this out a little bit more in a little bit, it was common for people to say, I'm at the end of my rope, I'm going to sell myself into slavery or into servanthood. The third thing was this, that advancement was possible within slave status. So if we were to go back to the story of Joseph and we were to read the entire story. What we would learn about Joseph is that when he spent his time as a servant or as a slave, he moved up about as high as he could go. He became his owner's right-hand man. He was over the entire estate, and he was seen as someone who was trustworthy and honorable. Very different than what we understand as typical slavery in our country just a few hundred years ago. We're not setting this aside. We're not just saying, oh, well, slavery is okay or servanthood is okay. But what I want us to understand is that the understanding of what servanthood and slavery was at the time is very different than what we think of in our country. See, if we go to Deuteronomy 15 now, we're going to get more information. We're fleshing out this information about how, how does Scripture define what this is and how do we understand it. And in Deuteronomy chapter 15, we're going to read a few verses here. I'm going to start in verse 12. And this, these are the instructions, okay? These are the instructions for people to understand how we do this thing called slavery or servanthood. And so in verse 12, it starts here. If a Hebrew sells himself or herself to be your servant and serves you for six years, in the seventh year, you must set that servant free. So here's what we understand. Hebrew to Hebrew, same race, same race, Right? No hierarchy there. This is just someone that needs help. They give you themselves over to slavery. After seven years, you have to set them free. See, that's why people would sell themselves into it. It wasn't a life sentence. It was a, I'm going to give myself for six years as working for this person, and then I will be set free. Can I get myself on my feet and back up? In these next seven years. Let's go to verses 13 and 14. It says, When you release a male servant, do not send him away empty-handed. Give him a generous farewell gift from your flock, your threshing floor, and your wine press. Share with him some of the bounty with which the Lord God has blessed you. So not only do they get set free, but they also get sent with gifts. So very different situation, right? So not only are you going to be able to work for them, then you're going to be set free, then you're going to be given some things from your master to be able to then hopefully get yourself back up on your own feet and not be destitute, not be homeless, not be jobless. You can do those things, and it was a positive thing for that to happen. And this is the verse where if people are saying that the Bible doesn't 100% 
go against slavery like we understand it in our country. This next verse is where we understand that. Verse 15 says, Remember that you were once slaves in the land of Egypt. The Lord your God redeemed you. That is why I am giving you this command. You see, the slavery that the Israelites endured in Egypt was more of the kind of slavery that we understand in our history of our country. The Israelites got there because of Joseph, and, and the Egyptians started to realize that the Israelites were, there were too many of them. They were getting too powerful. They might take over, that we would be outnumbered. So the Egyptians decided, let's put them into slavery. Let's keep them under our thumb. Let's make sure they can't overtake us. There was that racial hierarchy. There was a desire to keep them down. There was a desire to do wrong to them. There was abuse that went on there. And so what God is saying in verse 15 is, you remember that type of slavery. We are never doing that again. That's not who we are. So in culture, we're going to understand this idea of servanthood, but when someone becomes your servant or your slave, they're only doing it for seven years, and when they leave, you're going to bless them when they go. You're going to help them move forward. Verse 16 says this, But suppose your servant says, I will not leave you because he loves you and your family and has done well with you. Verse 17, In that case, take an awl and push it through his earlobe into the door. After that, he will be your servant for life. And do the same for your female servants. Now you're like, time out, that sounds terrible. Yes, it does. However, I did some research. You should do some research. Okay, there's a lot out there, but this was a positive thing. For us, culturally, we're going, this sounds awful, right? I'll just go to Piercing Pagoda if I want to get my ear pierced. I don't need to go to the door. But this was a positive thing. And understand what happened in the verse before. Why is this happening? Because the servant says, I want to stay and work for you. So it encourages the master or the owner in this situation to build a positive relationship if this is a good worker. So that at the end of the seven years, the worker will say, I want to stay here and work for you. This, everything that the Bible is teaching us here in Deuteronomy about this situation is for servant and owner to work together to build a good relationship so that that relationship continues to move forward. Or at least at the end of seven years, the master's not upset because he has to give gifts to the person when they leave. You would much rather give gifts to somebody that you're like, man, I don't want you to go, but I love you, right? I wish, here, do well. That's the kind of picture that scripture is painting for us. Last verse we're going to read in Deuteronomy. It says, you must not consider it, in verse 18, you must not consider it a hardship when you release your servants. Remember that for six years they have given you services worth double the wages of a hired worker. And the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do. So our understanding of slavery is not the same as what we understand in our country. And in fact, what we need to understand about this is that servants were owed payment, gratitude, and respect. That's the picture that Deuteronomy paints for us to understand. We don't get that all the time because this system doesn't exist in our culture. And so it makes sense for us to look at Scripture and go, why isn't it just saying slavery is wrong? Why is it giving us parameters? Why is it encouraging it? But if you really dig into that and understand it, if we go back to what slavery was in our country, if, if the slave owners had looked at this and understood this to be the standard for how they were to do what they were doing, first of all, they wouldn't have bought slaves in the first place. But second of all, if they had treated them this way, slaves would have been let go after seven years and they would have been given gifts. And it wouldn't have been the same situation. And so we have to see that when the Bible doesn't 
say that it's wrong necessarily. It's a different idea. It's a different context. And it is not saying that slavery is okay the way that we understood it in our country. There's another place in the New Testament I want to go real quick. And that's Philemon. You may not go to Philemon a lot. It's one page. So it might be a little difficult to find. But in Philemon verse 10, it says this, I appeal to you, and this is Paul talking, I appeal to you to show kindness to my child Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while in prison. Onesimus hasn't been much use to you in the past, but now he is very useful to both of us. I am sending him back to you, and with him comes my own heart. Jump down to verse 15. It seems you lost Onesimus for a little while so that you could have him back forever. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge it to me. So just to give us a little bit of context, Paul's writing this letter to Philemon. He ends up coming in contact with Onesimus, who was a servant of Philemon. They're in prison together, and while they're in prison together, Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. Philemon, we learn, is already a follower of Christ. Now, Philemon would have known all of we just talked about from Deuteronomy. He would have known this is the way you handle this, this is the way servants are, are to be cared for, and the seven-year situation, the gifts, all that. He would have understood all of that. However, in Roman culture, there was slavery like what we understand from our country. And he would have actually had the right to punish, abuse, to hurt Onesimus because he went away when he wasn't supposed to. But what does Paul say? He says, if you have any problem with Onesimus, just think, just put it on me. And he says, don't think of him just as a servant anymore, but you are to think of him as a brother. He says, it's actually better that he left because now you have a servant in your home who's actually another follower of Jesus. So this is good. Don't treat him just as a slave. Treat him as a brother. Paul actually elevates the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon so that it's not just simply owner and servant anymore. And here's what happens. Paul, Paul doesn't look to change or seek to change cultural norms, but he encourages redeemed relationships. Paul knew that he wasn't going to be able to change the landscape of culture with this letter. He knew that that wasn't going to happen. And he also knew that if Onesimus had sold himself to Philemon, there was a legal contract there that he was, even was upheld by Deuteronomy. So he wasn't saying, I can change everything in one letter. He wasn't saying, we're just going to wipe the slate clean. But what he, was gonna, what he was saying was, we're going to have a redeemed relationship here. We're going to go beyond the idea that there's just slave and master. And we're going to look at this as brothers. Because you are both found in Christ. And so while he doesn't say you're, you don't owe Philemon anything, or you shouldn't go back to Philemon or run the other way because you're his servant. He says, go back and function as brothers in Christ. He elevates that relationship instead of allowing it to continue to be just slave and master. So there's a difference. It's hard for us to understand sometimes because we don't get it. We don't live in that culture. We don't want to necessarily give ourselves over in service. 
but we go find other jobs, don't we? It looks different, feels different, but guess what? As someone who, if you're a boss or a manager or whatever, and you think about treating your employees this way, not as servants, but as positive, right? This is good. We want to build good relationship. That would even be a positive for us in the workplace. And so scripture doesn't come out and just say slavery is wrong, but the idea of slavery is different. And when it does mention the slavery that was like what goes on in our country, when he thinks about the Israelites and the Egyptians, he says, we're not doing that anymore. Get rid of it. So question number one, does it condone slavery? Not the kind of slavery we think of in America. But was it okay and gave parameters for the type of servanthood that existed at the time? Absolutely. Here's the second question that we're going to tackle today. Does the Bible denigrate women? What does that mean? Well, does the Bible push women down? Does it elevate men above women? This is a big one, big conversation that will happen. Many people I've heard have problems with Scripture because they see this to be the case, that we keep women off the stage or we keep women from having a voice or we keep women from doing certain roles or jobs or whatever. And so people will look at that and they have a problem with Christianity because of it. And so let's go to the one of the big passages that we'll get quoted when this problem comes up. It's Ephesians chapter 5. So again, we're going to hear from Paul, and he kind of talks about this. Remember, this is, this is New Testament, okay? So when people bring this up, it's not just like we can say, oh, that's Old Testament. We can just kind of forget about it, right? This is New Testament. So this is instruction that's given that we would say is very important for us to follow as a church. So in Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to start in verse 22. It says this, For wives, this means submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is head of his wife as Christ is the head of the church. He is the savior of his body, the church. Okay? Now this is the point where you read one verse and you just go, time out. That's not what Paul meant. Right? That's 2,000 years ago. That's not what we read today. And for good reason. And here's the thing. What happens with this verse sometimes is people have and continue to use this verse to elevate men above women. And let me say, that is a completely wrong understanding of this verse, and we're going to see that in a minute. But we read this, and if, you're not, if you haven't grown up in a context, or you have grown up in a context where they leverage this and use it in a wrong way and you hear it, you go, this is a problem. I don't, that's, just this at face value does not make sense to me. That's why we don't read one verse, right, or two verses. We don't just read it. We have to read the context. So let's keep going in verse 24. It, it just kind of doubles down. As the church submits to Christ, so your so wives should submit to your husbands in everything. So now you're going, wait a minute, you're just get, you're making it worse, right? Now it's in everything. I'm supposed to about, think about my husband as I would honor the Lord. I've met my husband, he is not God. And so now I have to submit in him to him in everything, right? This is a problem. And it seems, it seems that Paul would be elevating men above women. It seems that way if we only read those verses. But again, we have to keep going. Verse 25 says this, For husbands, this means love your wives just as Christ loved the church. He gave up his life for her to make her holy and clean, washed by the cleansing of God's word. He did this to present her to himself as a glorious church without a spot or wrinkle or any other blemish. Instead, she will be holy and without fault. Verse 29 and 30, No one hates his own body but feeds and cares for it just as Christ cares for the church, and we are members of his body. So let's, let's pause and just understand. Let's, let's actually go back, if you're looking at verses 25 and 26. It says this, For husbands, this means love your wives. Just as Christ loved the church, he gave up his life for her 
to make her holy and clean. So the instructions then to husbands in this situation are you have to give up your whole life to your wife. That sounds like submission to me, right? I'm going to submit my whole life to you, my everything I have, right? My, your well-being is my well-being. I'm going to provide for you. I'm going to protect you. I'm going to supply for you. I'm going to give you all of what I am because that's what Christ did for the church. Okay, now go back and go wives submit to your husbands. So really what you hear is wives submit to your husbands, husbands submit to your wives, okay? Let me go with a really cheesy example. What happens when you get married? It's a circle, right? It's a ring. It goes on your finger. It's a circle. That's what we're talking about. It's a circular mutual submission that continues to happen because that's how marriages work best. When I say to my wife, I'm going to give myself completely to you, I'm going to provide for you, I'm going to listen to you, I'm going to be there for you in every situation, and she says the same for me, then it's not one or the other, right? There's no this, it's this. And so we try, we, we need to work at this. I need, I'll just say I need to work at this, right? I need to work at this. We need to get better at trying to outsubmit each other. That's the idea we're trying to do. So when we look at this and we say, Oh, well, Bible says, wives, submit to your husbands. It also says, husbands, you have to give up your whole life for your wife. That's what has to happen. This isn't a situation where one is elevated above the other. In fact, what Paul is doing is he's establishing women's equality with men. Because in this culture, when they would have read it, like we read it, and I start off with the verse that says, wives, submit to your husbands, and all the ladies go, time out. The opposite would have happened in their culture, right? Everyone would have read this and heard wives submit to your husbands. And everyone in that culture 2,000 years ago were like, yeah, that's the way it is. But then they would have gone to husbands and say, husbands, you have to submit your life to your wife. And all the men would have went, time out, Paul. That's not what I understand. See, because men had all the power. They were able to divorce wives when they wanted to. They were able to just tell her where to go, what to do, all, all this stuff. Like they had the power and women were relegated to the lowest rung on the ladder. Not correctly, that's not the way it should be, but that's the way it was in their culture. So when Paul actually says, husbands, submit your lives to your wives, he's elevating women to equality with men. And in their culture, they would have read that and thought, what is Paul saying? And he was being revolutionary and understanding how he understood Jesus related with women. Now let's look at that briefly. So Jesus also treated women equally with men. And we're not going to go to every spot. If you want, you can take notes and you can go check out these places a little bit later. But this is what Jesus did. First of all, Jesus told parables about women. He would tell these stories to teach ideas to people. And he would use women as the main character in the story, which was not often true. Usually it would go to a male figure. Even today in our culture, we would say maybe sometimes that a male role is, is seen more in a movie or a book or something than a female role. And so Jesus would actually tell these stories and he would use Parables that were about women. You can find those in Luke 15 and 18. He would commend women's righteousness above men. This would have made the men, especially the men like Pharisees, this would have made, oh, their blood would have boiled. Because they would have, he would have looked at women and said, that woman is more righteous than you. And he would elevate their righteousness because of their faith as women to be better than the role at times of Pharisees and men who thought they were righteous. You can find that in Luke 7. In 21. And then Jesus would also heal women and he would grant their requests 
when they would come wanting him to heal or raise others. So when they showed up in his context, he would give them attention. He would hear them out. He would hear, heal them, and he would even meet their requests. He didn't ignore them when they came into his presence. He saw them as equals with the men who were around them. And I want to read, I want to go to one more passage real quick in Luke chapter 8. I want us to understand something really cool from Scripture. Luke chapter 8, I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, Soon afterward, Jesus began to tour, began a tour of the nearby towns and villages. Preaching and announcing the good news about the kingdom of God, he took his 12 disciples with him, along with some women who had been cured of evil spirits and diseases. Among them were Mary Magdalene, from whom he had cast out seven demons, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, Herod's business manager, Susanna, who, <clears throat> and many others who were contributing from their own resources to support Jesus and his disciples. So guess what? Jesus' ministry was sustained by women. We have the 12 disciples, right? Jesus is doing ministry with them. And then we have women that are following as well, can, even contributing, right? Giving money to help can build the church and help Jesus sustain himself and the 12 disciples. In fact, we have other um, references and people that have done studies that show that most of the early church was women. There were a lot of women. And there are even other uh, documentations from the same time where, where people would make fun of the church because it was a lot of women and children. Because they saw women as less than and children as less than. And they go, oh, yeah, look at this religion that only has women and children. Like they, they literally made fun of them 2,000 years ago. Because women were such an important part of the church. So does the Bible push women down and say that they shouldn't be important or men are more important? No. Does it say that men and women fulfill different roles? Yes, it does say that. But it doesn't say that one is more important than the other. It doesn't say that one is needed more than the other. In fact, what it says in a marriage relationship is that both are equally needed and both should submit to each other and create that circle. And so when we look at situationally, we say, okay, do people play different roles? We accept that idea all the time, right? People do different things. There's different roles. If you're, again, I, I'm just a sports guy, so I think about different positions on a field and every position is needed. I would much rather show up to a game where we have a full team than if we're short half the team. You need them to be successful. They're necessary. They play a very important role, and that's what Scripture helps us understand, that men and women together have different roles, have different ways of doing things even sometimes, and both are necessary. Both are needed in order to understand the person of God and to glorify him completely. That's what is needed and necessary. So two big questions today, right? Slavery or slaves, women, how does the Bible help us understand both of these? And I, and I want to land in a place so that we understand kind of how to walk away with this and how to do this better, how these two ideas can help us kind of move forward in life and how we would maybe filter these ideas as we think about them in everyday life. And the first thing I want us to understand is that servanthood is a picture of God's love. One of the things I think that comes back as we read these verses and as we understood what the Bible says about these two things is that servanthood is necessary. In a marriage relationship, there's that idea of serving one another, submitting to one another, encouraging one another. And then we look at the role or the, the relationship between Onesimus and Philemon. 
And ultimately, I think what Paul was saying to Philemon was, you have to then also serve Onesimus, right? Don't take your rights, what you're allowed to do, what you what the law would say is okay for you. Don't just take that and use it. Take that, forgive him, and elevate him to the place of brother. Serve him, care for him, have a positive relationship with him. Why does, why does that come back so much? Because servanthood is a picture of God's love. That's what Jesus did for us. He served us. And so in both of these situations, we have to understand that. I think what servanthood does is servanthood seeks to level the playing field through mutual submission. The best way for, even when we're thinking about the servant-master dynamic, the best way for them to move forward was to level the playing field and say, this is a relationship that's going to last seven years. I know I'm going to have to give you gifts at the end. Let's get along. And in fact, let me encourage you so much that at the end of seven years, you want to stay. I don't know if you've seen this uh, kind of happen in your, in your own life, but I think when someone shows up and they show you the same kind of respect, you are more apt to respect them. I would do this when I taught high school. I, I could do this in high school I, or when I taught high school. I don't think you could do it with younger kids, but I would start off the year and I would say to my students, I'm here to treat you like an adult until you show me I shouldn't. That was the way we started. So if, if you're going to be cool, we're, we're going to have mutual respect for one another, then we're good. We can move forward. You break that deal, and this relationship changed. Why? I didn't want to start the year off. I didn't want to start our relationship as the person who was just going to have all the power over them. That's not the dynamic I wanted. Now, other che- teachers might say I should do it differently, but that's what I did. And so Sometimes that meant I had to stick my nose in and say, you're not being respectful or you're not doing it. So the dynamic of the relationship is going to change a little bit. But for the most part, when I said, I respect you, they said, I'll respect you back. The same thing is true, hopefully here at GFC, right? I don't want the idea that I have power, let's just do that, right? To be lorded over anybody. Let's have mutual respect for one another. Let's have conversation. Let's do things right, right? That's what servanthood is. I'm going to serve you and say, I'm going to hear you out. I'm not going to use whatever power, quote unquote, I have over you. We're going to do this together because that's what Jesus would call us to do. And that mutual submission then creates a positive relationship. See, when these two topics come up, the problem that people have with it is they feel like someone's going to use their power over somebody else. Slavery was that use of power over somebody else, and it was wrong. A wrong understanding of Ephesians 5 would cause husbands or men to have an unnecessary amount of use of power, again, over their wives. It was wrong. And so we bring in that mutual submission. And what we understood, what we understand is that submission, servanthood, and sacrifice defined Jesus. And he calls us to the same way of life. It's incredible to think about the fact that the God of the universe would be a servant to us, that he would make a sacrifice to love us, that he would have a submission to God in a way that caused him to put himself under humans, to be a human child with human parents, to be put on trial by humans when he's the God of the universe. It's the ultimate picture of submission and servanthood and sacrifice. And again, when we look at that and we say, well, I'm going to use my power over here over somebody else. It's not the way God did it. It's not the way Jesus did it. It's not the way that we're called to live. So when we look at these two issues, 
God says, serve one another in whatever relationship you have. And that power dynamic is going to go away. That's what scripture teaches. People are going to say, oh, it teaches this, teaches that. And I'll be honest, there are other passages that we're not getting to today that you could bring up and say, what about this? And if there's a passage that's sticking in your mind, you say, I need to talk about that passage. This is driving me nuts, right? Send me an email, call me, whatever you want to do. Like, let's have the conversation about it. But from a holistic perspective, what Scripture teaches is that men and women, equal and just as important. Slavery, as we understood it in our country, 100% wrong. But that he would call us to this mutual servanthood, submission, and sacrifice towards one another, especially when we're found in a relationship where you're a follower of Jesus and I'm a follower of Jesus. We would see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ and move forward from there. Let's close our time together in prayer. Lord, we are thankful that you have given us these verses to understand these difficult topics. And we know that these two issues especially will pop into our culture every once in a while. Uh, you know, Scripture will take a hit because it seems to say something different. And we ask that we would have a clear understanding of what you were teaching and how you want us to understand these two issues. I pray for our relationships, while that servant-master thing doesn't exist anymore, there are those of us who are in positions where we are over other employees or we're one of those employees with a boss that's frustrated. And we look at this and we say, what, what is my calling? What is my role in that? We ask that we would be submissive in a positive way, that we would be a servant, that we would be sacrificial towards others to build a better relationship. We ask that in our marriages that this would not be something where we look at Ephesians 5 and we say, oh, I have power or you have power or whatever. It's, we ask that that mutual submission would be there so that we would not see one as more important than the other, but we would see each other as equally important. We pray that our church would be a place that is seen that way, that we would look at men and women in different roles in society, that we would say that every one is important, every person is important, every gender is important, everything that you have created is important and that we would honor those people the way that you have called us to as image bearers of you. In Jesus' name, amen.